This evening, it's the 1920s in Hollywood, California, and this new fad called talkies is wreaking havoc everywhere. In song. It's the 1800s, and a young girl who would later be known as the best man on an ill-fated ship fights, bites, and scratches her way through life. And it's back. Just like the man in the title, we once again find ourselves attracted like magic to the desert. Perhaps because it's clean. Welcome to They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. My name is Tosin, and you are listening to They Don't Make Them Like They Used To, broadcasting from Sunshine Radio at St. Mary's Hospital on the Isle of Wight. It's 6 p.m. on a Friday night, which can only mean one thing. It's time to relax, close your eyes, and go back to a time when all this was fields, nobody had a TV, and the best thing you could do with your hard-earned pocket money was to go to a Saturday morning cinema. With me in the studio is Sharon. Hello, Hello. Sharon. Hello, Tozin. And a big thank you to Gillian, Eileen, and the other ladies in our very own pet ward, Alveston. Uh, Alveston. Yeah, hi, Gillian. Uh, no, this is the thing I did not ask, and I should have asked, whether it was Gillian or Gillian. I couldn't... Uh, it's usually Gillian, isn't it's it? Gillian, it's Gillian, generally. It's usually Gillian. Okay, we're going to call you Gillian. Well, I should have clarified Gillian, but please set me straight when I come round again later and let me know whether we've just got it wrong and we'll just go back and record the whole show. Now, Sharon, would you be kind enough to let the good folk know how it is this show unfolds each week? This We are at here at They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. We look at films pre-1980, which was a very good year in the Tozen household. It's the year that Tozen was born. <laughs> yes. And we look at a genuine classic film, a film that is without doubt a classic of its type or of its era or of, in any way you want to discuss it, it's a good film. And then we look at one that maybe has gone under the radar that we haven't talked about as much, we don't know as well, and these are what we call our hidden gems. And then, of course, we couldn't be a show at St Mary's Hospital without going into the wards, and we go to our favourite ward, Alveston. Mm -hmm. Oh, Alveston. And we talk about a patient choice. They're either first film or a beloved film at the cinema that has a cherished memory for them. And then if we have time, we talk about an exception to the rule, which is a film that was made after 1980, but we still think is worth its weight in celluloid or in plastic. Yeah. And so that you should check it out on DVD or whatever means you want to. And it's worth looking at and it fits within our canon of our show. Yep. Yep, thank you very much. Yeah, that is, I couldn't have said it better myself. Right. Right, so without further ado, uh, we, as uh, so Gillian, as Sharon said, we will be talking about you and we'll be talking about you after our first choice. We'll be talking about what you gave us after our first bona fide classic of a film. Now, I have the privilege of picking our bona fide classic today and I have gone with a film that came out, well, I discovered this film right about the time when I had discovered my love of old movies. I've told the story before of how there was a channel on TV in Nigeria where I was growing up called um, TNT. It's now called TCM for Turner Classic Movies. And um, this, they started, they started going through this series of showing MGM musicals and just sort of showing mm. MGM musicals over and over again. And I found this film, and the subject matter of this film combined, well, when you think of the subject matter of the film that was an old movie combined with this growing love of cinema that I was beginning to get just made this almost like an instant classic. And I would always look for this on the schedule whenever they showed it, and I'd try and watch it again and again and again. And that film is. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you what film it is. I'm just going to play you some music from the film, and I'm pretty sure that very soon you'll be able to figure out 
what film it is I'm talking about. Dancing and singing in the rain. Yes, yes, that is the 1952 classic Singing in the Rain starring Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds and Donald O'Connor. Oh my word, that's a film. That is a film and a half. It's it's so I mean it's something even those opening I find that that just makes me feel happy whatever day it is yeah. or whatever's going on. It's like, oh yeah, it's better. Yeah. Now admit it, have you done the Singing in the Rain dance when it's really been raining? I've never actually done that. <gasps> no, I have. I've never, I've <laughs> never actually done the singing in the rain dance. I've never, I've never actually done that. So, I mean, it's it's such a classic film like, that I think I feel, I feel like it's oh, I can just start talking about this film without even explaining what it's about. Yeah, we know but, it. Yeah, I, I think that, but I'm um, just in case there's somebody case. out there for the uninitiated and for the people who have never seen Singing in the Rain or don't really know what it's about. Now, this is a film that is. It's kind of like a film, one of the films that's in love with films itself. So it's set up and it starts off and you have like this massive premiere in Hollywood is happening. And then you see the, the dark, the, the stars, a guy called Don Lockwood and a girl called Lena Lamont. Yeah. And they're coming out in, into this whole thing. And it's, it's the 1920s and they come in and they're like, so tell us all about the latest film. What happens? And like, you know, they interview them. And as it goes on, you find out that these guys are like the big stars of their era. They're the big stars of their era. And everybody is like, they love these guys on film together because they're silent movie stars. They're shopping all the films together. And they're always playing like, you know, the hero and his, uh, the, the hero and the love interest in every single film. And the public has got, has got this idea in the head that these two people are actually an item. And they love the fact that they're an item. And the studio has, the studio plays this up going, oh my God, yeah, yeah. They're an item, they're an item. And it's almost part of their contract that they have to pretend to be an item. And it's, and each time they go out in public, they never let the lady talk. And there's this whole sequence at the beginning that I just find hilarious about how they just stop. They keep yeah. stopping <laughs> Lena from talking. Like So it's kind of like Don says something and then go, so Lena, what do you think about this? And then Don sort of like pushes out of the way and goes, yes, Lena thinks it's one of the best films we've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go like, you're like, why don't they not let her yeah, talk? Yeah, just let her talk. And then they go, when they go into, when they go into the place, she finally talks and she kind of goes, what's wrong with the way I talk? <laughs> <laughs> you've just demonstrated it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so and so the film starts with this lovely joke that kicks off and then it turns out that this is a time of change in Hollywood because shortly after that the jazz singer yeah gets the talkies released, and that was the first film that ever had sound in it so it was like this whole revolutionary thing and it threw it throws everybody into like chaos because they're like oh my god what are we gonna do what are we gonna do because not all the movie stars who look good on camera sound good <laughs> sound good on camera like um like Lena Lena Lamont does it so the whole film becomes this thing about how does Hollywood deal with the change and how does this guy because um Don Lockwood he started off as a stuntman and because like the star wasn't there one day he stood in and that's how he became a star so how does he adapt to that and it becomes this whole thing about the hollywood studio system what was going on at that time but it's a musical i have all these things and there's a subplot of 
dumb. Like how Don Lockwood is running away from some of his fans who are trying to mob him because they're like, oh my God, it's Don Lockwood. He must steal his tucks and everything. <laughs> and then he ends up in the car with Debbie Reynolds and how he and Debbie Reynolds start the whole thing. And Cosmo, who's oh, who's played by Donald O'Connor, is like his best friend and how they've come up together. And it's just, I just think it's, a, it's, for me, it's the most complete movie that Gene Kelly ever made. Yes, yeah. Yeah, because I've seen quite a few of the other ones that he's done, and I think like sometimes the storylines are a bit sort of straightforward and everything. Weak. They're a bit weak because they're just showing off his talents as a yeah. singer or a dancer, aren't they? Yeah, singer, dancer, performer. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's great. I mean, he directed this himself. He and Stanley Donnan directed the film, and it's just. But I think it's just such a good film that comes together, brings in the dancing, the glitz, the glamour, the Hollywood. It's like everything that you loved about MGM musicals it comes together in, in Singing in the Rain. And the funny thing about it is that it actually started off life as a jukebox musical. So all the songs in Singing in the Rain previously existed. And it was... All right. Well, we think that's a modern thing, don't we? Like when you look at Mamma Mia, that they take songs that have been yeah. around and you make and you they build the, the story, the story around, around it. it. Yeah. Well, I had no idea that they did that with this. Yeah, yeah Sing, Singing in the Rain had been around since the 20s. Wow. The song had been around since the 20s and they didn't actually do anything. Well, so there was a, oh, I'm trying to remember what the, there was a group of, uh, there was a freed unit, an Arthur Freed unit who were, they were, they were to come up with ideas for musicals for MGM. And they said, okay, look, we've got all these songs and everything like that. And then decided to put it together and put this story around it and all that. And, and when the film was released, it wasn't even that big a hit. But I just think it's such such an amazing film. Yeah. It's a, such a such a great film. It's got a whole bunch of great songs. Yeah, and you've got these real standout numbers, don't you? Like, make them laugh. Yeah. And that's one where the, the, the room turns upside down, doesn't it? And there's Donald O'Connor. Oh, yeah. He's like dancing yeah. on. Yeah, he's that, dancing like on, on the, the wall on the and he's jumping and... off things and he's and he's totally totally just in his yeah. element of like crap falling and just everything like that and because that make him laugh song is just Donald O'Connor on his own. Yeah. It's him on camera for like five minutes. Yeah, just jumping about. Just jumping about <laughs> and doing his thing and it's awesome. It's awesome. I mean, you've got good morning, like the good morning. Uh, yeah. Good, good morning. This film is just littered with great songs. It's littered with great moments. It's, it's I, I think it's extremely funny. I think I think it's really funny, like the whole Lena thing and everything like that. There's just set pieces that come up with the film that still make me laugh today yeah, when I see them because work. they're just well executed. They're just well executed moments, and I think there is one moment uh, like the where because there, there's a bit in the film where they they decide they're going to make a talkie. So they said, well, we're going to make a talkie and then they go ahead and they do it, but they don't have a de- an idea how to do this. They don't know how to, they don't know, they, don't, they have no respect for how you actually do sound recording. So they do things like, they give Lena a whole bunch of pearls and she's playing with her pearls. Yeah, you can hear so, this like rap. So, I know the scene so, you mean. So, 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 so when they actually watch the film back, all they can hear is... Like over all the dialogue, you can't hear anything. And doesn't she keep uh, turning her head away, and then suddenly you can't hear what she's saying, and then suddenly she yeah. comes out really loud again. Yeah, they keep doing that. They keep, and then and the, there's and the, there's a bit of the premiere where they they have a because I think they they have a film called The Dueling Cavalier. That's right. Then and it's, it's and yeah. it's supposed to be like the big. This is going to be it. Is Don Lockwood, Lockwood and Lamont are going to come out in yeah, the talk, in the new talking era. Yeah. It's like no, look at them. Hear what they sound like. Oh, I got to start feel the fashion. And then they have the premiere. And at the premiere, everybody's just laughing because of all the yeah. how how ineptly this film is made. And, and the bit about it is where the sound goes out of sync with the video. And so they have they have they have, they have, they have a love scene, which is supposed to be. 
the lady's going, no, no, no. <laughs> and the man's going, yes, yes, yes. And no, no, no. I know the scene. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Number one, the dialogue is terrible. <laughs> and um, number two, the sound goes out of sync. So when the lady goes away and she's doing her whole sort of like, you know, the whole sort of like uh, the coquettes thing. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I just, oh, she's supposed to go, no, no. You hear the man going, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and then the man is going, no, no, no. <laughs> and everyone just laughs the film out of the cinema. And I think those, they're just these standout moments in yeah. the film that I look at and I go, man, they nailed that. They just, they totally nailed it. I think it's such a, such a, such a good film. Anything to say about it? Deserve, gonna... No, deservedly so. I think it's, as you say, it's a corker. I think there's those, like, yeah, good, you say good morning and make them laugh and sing in the rain. These numbers, that as soon as you hear them, you just want to smile and dance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can say that because I know even when, when I was in the in the hospital earlier and I was speaking to, I was speaking to um, Gillian and uh, I sort of said, oh, yeah, we're going to be talking about some other films today and we're going to talk about... Um, we're going to talk about singing in the rain. There was just like the thing with Jillian and I think Eileen, who is in the bed beside Jillian. There was just kind of like, oh, as it everybody just admitted. They picture it immediately. Everybody immediately just sort of said that. Yep, that's a good film. That's a good film. And hang on a second. I'm trying to sort something out. But now we have another film we're going to be talking about that has a certain somebody in this. And, yes. But, but in this film, Debbie Reynolds. So yes. Debbie Reynolds, what do you think about her? Yeah, I, I, I really like her. I think she's one of these people on on screen who comes across as being very likable. Yep, yep. And I think even now that she's a bit of this old dame, isn't she? She's got this sort of um, persona about her. She just strikes you as being one of these likable ladies. And when she was younger, you think, yeah, as a woman, she's not threatening, and yep. and that she's so glamorous that she's yep. you know, not real. She always seems to be down to earth and. You know, like a like a you could be you can imagine that you you would like her and that you wouldn't be competitive with her or she wouldn't be competitive with you so that you would just be you could enjoy each other's company. Well, so I think yes, I like her. Yeah, I actually think that that's a massive, massive part of um, of Debbie Reynolds's um, appeal is that sort of like likable thing because she never came out and she was never like a Marilyn Monroe type or anything like that. No, she's never like the glamour puss. Was no, she, she was she never was... the glamour puss. And Singing in the Rain is her screen debut. Is, a, is it really? Yeah, it's the first film she was ever in at the age of nineteen, and apparently there was quite a bit of like, uh, there was quite a bit of, how do you put it? There was quite a bit of aggro between her and Gene Kelly because Gene Kelly was notorious for being a stickler for professionalism yes. and all that kind of stuff, and he was uh, he apparently was quite a hard ta- taskmaster. And there's stories that he made her cry quite a few times because it was oh. a screen debut, yeah. and she's going up against like this titan legend of cinema, and he wants everything exacting and everything like that. This Apparently, it was they made up afterwards, but but it, I think Singing in the Rain, as great as the film is, it was not the... It was not the... The, the happiest happiest. Set. It was not the happiest of... Um, what do you call it? It's not the happiest of environments for for right, poor for Debbie her. Reynolds, but hey, maybe through through it, pain through through pain you get some good magic. It doesn't come across on the screen though, so they obviously are true professionals, all of them. They really, really are. So, singing in the rain, a bona fide classic for today. And before we go into the next thing, we are going to leave you now. Well, we're going to leave singing in the rain uh, with another song from it, and this is Good Morning. Oh, a lovely song. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. 
They laugh and you laugh with them. <laughs> oh no, it's so good. I mean, anytime, anytime you have the three of them on that on the screen, anytime you have like Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, and Donald O'Connor on the screen, it's just amazing. Okay, we were just watching that. I was just thinking, like, just like the dancing that they put together yeah. and everything like that. Because NGM musicals were a lot about the glamour. They were a lot about this sort of like heightened sense of reality and everything like that. And I think it just comes so well together in this film. Yes, that I, perfect synchronicity. Yeah, I think it's it's by it's by far my favorite, my my favorite MGM musical. But uh now, now, Jillian, it is your chance. It is your turn. It's your turn to shine, for us to shut up and to listen to you. So every week, as Sharon said, we go into the hospital and we ask people a question about films. Like, you know, usually, what's the first film you saw in the cinema? Now, this is the second week in a row that Alveston has turned the tables on us. We ask a simple question and they give us an awesome answer that wasn't <laughs> what we asked. But, but so we had, um, so I spoke to Jillian earlier and this is what Jillian had to say about, uh, well, it's one of her firsts at the cinema. First time I ever went out with my husband, first date with my husband, it was to see Lawrence of Arabia. So the theme from Lawrence of Arabia. And we've been married 50 years this year. Oh, wow. Oh, that's, okay, that's actually a very long first date to begin with. Well, uh, no, no, I mean, we've, our first date was um, two years before I, we got married. But yes. I'm just saying, Lawrence of Arabia was the first time I ever went out with him. Yeah. And then two years later, we got married. And we've been married 50 years this year. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, that's amazing. So what do you remember about Lawrence of Arabia when you went to see it? It was actually, it was an excellent film, Peter O'Toole. Um, the music was, was really, really interesting. It was very nice music. Um, so when I hear that, I always think of that first date. And the amusing part is that my husband is named David Gambling. I should, perhaps shouldn't say this. And the person I'd been going out prior to him was called John Lawrence. And my mum and dad thought it was ironical that I was having a date with my first date with David and going to see Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> oh, sorry, excuse me. Okay, yeah, cool, yeah, we got all that. <laughs> so um, that's that's... Right, yeah, so thank you so much, Julia, for that. And for you, specifically, because you mentioned it and you spoke about how it always makes you think about yes. your first date ever, your first date ever with your husband, here is the main theme from Lawrence of Arabia by Maurice Jarre. What is it, Major Lawrence, that attracts you personally to the desert? It's clean. Now, if that doesn't define epic, I do not know what does. Yeah, this sweeping <laughs> landscape of a sound. Yeah, yeah. It's it just, yeah, it is. It's epic. Yeah, it, it kind of, it's sort of like a perfect marriage of visual and sound. It's almost like that music immediately makes you think about the deserts. Yes. Yeah, or, 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 or in the case of Jillian, makes her think about her first date. Her first date with her husband. Now, I, I have to say, I have to say, her, her husband, David, Dave, he is he is probably one of the bravest men I know. For the first date, taking a lady to the cinema to watch a film that is almost four hours long. Yeah. For I was thinking that that is one long first date. I mean, Julian, all I can say is that he was pretty sure that he had a sure thing with you. Yeah, because that would 
you know, if you're thinking, if you go into the cinema thinking, yeah, let's go watch a musical or something. No, we're yeah. going to watch Lawrence of Arabia. Huh? Yeah, go watch Lawrence of Arabia. It's big, it's long, it's heavy. It's yeah, <laughs> like there's that. tragedy, there's sadness, there's horror, there's... You know, deserts. <laughs> there's a lot of deserts. There is a lot of deserts. And Omar Sharif and yep. Peter O'Toole looking beautiful. Exactly. And then you think, yeah, you must be very confident if you're thinking, this, this hey, is, look at this perfect specimen of manhood. This is one confident man. <laughs> this is one confident man. It's like, yeah, Peter O'Toole, check out those blue eyes. Yeah. Omar Sharif, look at him. Look at that luxurious moustache. smouldering. Now have a look at me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. up there. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. But I, 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 the more I think about it, the more amazing it is that he had the he had the stomach yeah. <laughs> to go there for a first date. So, Jillian, when you hear when you speak to David, tell him that he has an admirer here. Well impressed. Yeah, well impressed. Cannot believe he did that because honestly, I don't think I would do that. But onto the film itself. Yes, Lawrence of Lawrence Arabia. Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia. Epic. David Lean's essentially, it's like it's probably his crowning movie. Yes, it's just, this, I think the words come to your head, like sweeping mm-hmm. and emotional mm-hmm. and breathtaking. You've got these vistas, haven't you, of just the desert, of how it could be beautiful. And I don't think people had seen the desert in a beautiful way before then. Yeah. I think the only thing I can think of that compares to it, a recent film, is like English Patient, where you get, they, they look at the desert and they see its beauty rather than it's as a hostile environment. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, it's stunning. And then we've seen all the performances in it. You've, if you take out, you put these amazing performances in that landscape. Yeah. And just seeing Peter Tall running around with his robes on. Yeah. You know, the white robes blowing in the wind as he sort of feels the wind inflating his... His outer robe, isn't it? And he just runs about. Yeah. And you just picture that, and you think, yeah, that's just magical, really. Yeah, it. it I mean, it is. I mean, obviously, it's referenced. A lot of filmmakers talk about how, like, they steal liberally from Lawrence of Arabia just because David Lean had just such an eye for yes. for things. I think. I think it was. It was probably impossible for David Lean to make an ugly looking film. No, yeah, I think you're right. But I don't think he's one of these people. He doesn't. There aren't a lot of sort of crane shots, or you are looking at it. So almost ground level, aren't you? There aren't yeah. there are many shots where it's like sweeping all over the place. It's sweeping in. You see it, and the landscape like stretches out before you. So, and I think yeah, you feel it's more of an intimacy, but it's this on this huge scale. So you reckon that it's the kind of thing that if you went to say Tunisia or something and you stood there, you could have you a, could see that. you could see something like this. Yes. Yeah, because I mean, I w- I was actually at uh, I was at a film conference. I think I've told this story before. I was at a film conference a couple of weeks back. And there was a cinematographer there who was talking about how one of his early films he was he was actually working with David Lin Lean on um on I think it was a film called Ryan's Daughter. Yes. Yeah, a film called Ryan's Daughter. And he said The Irish one. Yeah, that by that time, after he after David Lean had done Lawrence of Arabia, he'd like he just had like, you know, this hit of He's like, done Bridge on the River Choir. Bridge on the well, River Choir, he? yeah. He had like three films back to back where and the studio said, Go do whatever you want. Did he do Doctor Zhivago as well? I'm I'm thinking he did, but I don't want to. No, I don't want to suddenly say. I, I don't, I don't want to say. Him, I don't want to say that, but I, I think oh. it sounds like him. It sounds yeah, like him. Fits him with his canon. Yeah, and um, but man, we've just sort of totally disgraced ourselves as film buffs. We don't know who directed Dr. Kishivago. Uh oh, Boris Basnight wrote it. It's like yeah. So um, so he said that, and he said that they were filming this thing, and David Lean had gone off to dinner somewhere, and like it was sunset, and he'd sort of driven over this ridge. 
we've driven over and he'd seen like this valley in front of him and he had the sun coming down and the sun was reflected perfectly in a lake and everything like yeah. that and he was like oh my word i need to get that into this film yes. that we're making so he went to his uh his cinematographer and he was like look there's this place I need to get this shot. But it's like, but we don't have a scene that's going to fit. It's like, I don't care. We will write a scene. We need to get this shot in because this shot was beautiful. So they go up there the first day and wait for this thing to recreate. It doesn't happen. So they, and with film sets, because all these people are being paid for every minute that they're standing around. So he's taking them up to this place and waiting for this moment to be recreated so they can film it. And that's essentially the whole crew and everything like that. They wait, wait, wait. Doesn't happen. They pack up. They go home. They come back the next day. They wait. <laughs> it doesn't happen. <laughs> they come back up. They go home. They come back the third day and they wait. It doesn't happen. And they go, okay, fine. We're not going to do it then. But <laughs> but that's like for him, how he, how intense he was yeah. about the image. That and he how, had this visual that he wanted to just capture. He wanted to capture this visual. He wanted it to be beautiful and he wanted it and... It's like I will, I will wait. I will spend. I will burn the studio's money for three days, standing around waiting for this thing to show up. Because when it does show up, it will be amazing. It's gonna work. Yeah, yeah but uh, but that that was David Lean for you, and yeah, it worked though, didn't it? In his films, they yeah. have this. I do one of the most vivid pictures in my head when I think of Lawrence of Arabia is the scene when they're in the desert, and you, I think it's the Suez Canal. Oh yeah, and you see this this huge liner just sail through but you the foreground is desert then you see this ship just sailing by oh yeah and you've got this contrast haven't you between the ancient desert and the modernity of this ship and technology meeting yeah whatever it's just all these clashes of cultures and clashes of east and west and all these ideas just in one image yeah and it's just i think that's just stunning to think that yeah you're just this narrow channel that linked changed the world that yeah you've got this perfect image but yeah that that picture of the desert and then the ship just sailing through the desert it feels like <laughs> and the, the camels as well you know you've got the ships the desert and then you've got, you got a cam- ship in the desert <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, it, it is it is a, a i think like when i think modernly of like films that have that sort of dedication or uh, as enamored with the visual i think about the revenant which is in cinemas at yes. the moment and i think there is like um alejandro g inaritu who who directed that i think he he has a bit of that kind of thing about the because he's he's won i think he's won the best act director oscar two out of the last three years or something oh has he Goodness. yeah yeah and the guy who um the guy who who's the cinematographer and it has won has similarly won he yeah. won it for gravity won it for birdman and and it, it's pretty much a death so that he's going to win for this yes. film as well he's going to win for the, the revenant and they did a similar thing in that they were given nine months and they were like we want to go away and we want to film this film with all natural lights and all that and it's yeah. going to be all about the vistas and all about filming like because there's this contrast between the land a bit like the deserts which is quite a harsh unforgiving landscape mm. that can kill people and but there's beauty in it and they have this also the wilderness up in like you know wyoming where that is harsh life is difficult people have to like really really fight to survive but as they have that they're still they're still finding beauty in it and i think i I think that there's some sort of kindred spirit thing going on with david ling yeah you do get this contrast between what's visually beautiful and then often the brutality of what you see yeah as well against this landscape so you get this you know there's some scenes in lots of rabia that are just are horrible and yet it's you, you've got this surrounded by this beauty yeah it's just yeah the contrast between you know how close we are to death and how life is precious and all these other things and that it is a battle to exist and the people who live in these landscapes like with the 
you see the Arabs in lots of Arabia and yeah. the Revenant. You've got the native, the native yeah, Native Americans, yeah. Who, yeah, they sort of it's their like they've sort of adapted to the landscape. Yeah, and they are harsh people because of it in many ways. Yeah, but there's beauty in their lives as well. Yeah, it's yeah, definitely. So, but all I'll say is like that's a cracker of a first date. Yes. <laughs> it's a crack of a first date movie and I, I think I'd actually like to revise a little bit what I said beforehand I think Jillian I have a lot between you and David I have a lot more respect for you because you actually went you actually went like you well you still remember that you liked the film and you married the it guy it was memorable yeah. <laughs> you That's married what the you guy want for a first date, you make you sit memorable. down for four hours on your first date are you still like you know st- this is the chat for me oh but that that is actually that needs to be put up on a poster or something. So, well done, Jillian. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, actually just realized they're David and Jillian. Those are the names of the actors who play Mulder and Scully. <laughs> yes, they are. In the X-Files. Do-do-do-do. If that makes no sense, never mind. But anyway, um, hope you... Uh, yeah, thank you so much for letting us know that, uh, letting us know that, Jillian. It was great sharing your memories with us. And that is a story I'm going to be telling for a while now. It's like, oh, this guy took this lady to go see Lawrence of Arabia. So, yeah, maybe I can like have a first date of watching like a whole series because you could probably finish with some series in the same time as you watch that but <laughs> anyway thank you very much Jillian uh, uh, now we get onto the section of the show called the hidden gem where we talk about a film that is good but quite frankly not many people know that it has sort of slipped underneath the radar it has disappeared almost without a trace and we have dug down found it and brought it back to show it and say yes look at this people good and Sharon, you're choosing this this week. And yeah. could you tell us what you've chosen? I've chosen a film that, like the one of the characters in it, it's like a, we're miners, we're film miners. We know there's treasure in them, their hills, and we're going to dig and find them. And this is one I found many years ago, and I loved it then. And it's called The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Yeah. And it features Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds! Said, Molly Brown. Welcome to the Debbie Reynolds show, yeah. <laughs> where we plumb through Debbie Reynolds' back catalogue and tell you about all the things she did. All the things she did. Both the things you know and things you do not know about. Okay, so, uh, tell us Unsinkable Molly Brown. Unsinkable so this, Molly Brown. That is a phrase that shows up in many other places and is a bit in popular culture, the Unsinkable Molly Brown. Yes. So what's that What's that phrase all about? That phrase is all film? about. This base, I don't know how, I haven't. I don't know a lot about that, but this, there is a real lady called Molly Brown, Margaret Brown. Mm-hmm. And affectionately called Molly, who was, it, this is loosely based on her life. She was a lady who was born into poverty, um, lived, worked her way up, married a miner who wasn't wealthy at that time, but he struck it rich and became a millionaire mm-hmm. in the, the end of the 19th century. And they go to Europe and they meet, they meet all the crown heads and nobility of Europe. And and so they spend a lot of time in Europe and in America. And then Molly Brown, she spends a lot of time in Europe on her own. Yeah. And she actually is ends up sailing back to America on the Titanic. All right. And while it's whilst on the Titanic, obviously an incident happens with an iceberg, you may be aware of. And she ends up on lifeboat number six. And because of her conduct on that boat, she was there was number six was the only lifeboat that turned back to pick up survivors. Having got away they yeah. turned back and she was described as like the best man on board and she sort of rallied them she kept them going and basically she earned the nickname of being unsinkable that not even the titanic could put her down yeah that her she kept up her spirit she kept up people alive no one died on her lifeboat and that she came home to this enormous acclaim and they called her 
unsinkable Molly Brown. And she was like a tour de force and a celebrity in her day. And, and they made this musical, first of all, on Broadway in the 1950s. Yeah. And then they made it into a film in 1964. 1964, starring a friend of a show, Betty, uh, Debbie Deb- Reynolds. Betty Reynolds, who's that? So, <laughs> That's so, so from the unsinkable Molly Brown, here is a song called Belly Up to the Bar Boys. Yes, that is so that, that that gets me right in my seven brides for seven brothers yes. heart. <laughs> it, it sounds the tone. Yeah, it sounds yeah, so it that that kind of like seems to encapsulate the kind of thing that they were going for like it's all boisterous and everything yeah. like that and there's a little bit of calamity jane that seems to be in there like yeah. you know the whole sort of standing on a bar you just you get this image of standing on a bar and like you know rousing everybody up and like yelling and all that kind of stuff and yeah. i'm just one of the boys and that, all that sets the tone for molly brown who she is she's in this film i mean i i haven't I don't know a lot about the real Molly Brown, so I'm only going on what the film is. Yeah, which it's, is it's quite kind of. You do get you do, you do get the feeling that the legend is that the film is just like the legend. It's yeah, kind of like it's print like, the legend. Yeah, let's go for all the yeah the headline stuff. So she's raised as a bit of a hoyden, so she's always fighting and scrapping and and you know, she's one of the boys really. And then yeah. she decides that she wants better for herself. She wants to learn to read and write. She wants to be rich. She wants to love an amazing man yeah and so she leaves home to go make her fortune mm. and the first place she ends up is in this place called leadville where she gets a job in a boardy house as we've just heard oh 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 playing the piano <laughs> she's not in there as, as a board she's there as to play the piano and so she teaches herself like two chords mm-hmm. and so this is the song that she learned teaches herself how to play belly up the bar boys because it's a song that her like her father used to sing her being a bit of a roistering drinker himself. Yeah. So, and then when she's working in this boarding house, she meets a minor, Johnny Ledville Brown, as he's called, who who they fall in love when they get married when he hasn't got any money and then he strikes it rich. Yeah. And they go to Denver and because she's, her, she is what she sent a postcard and she learns to read because she's got this postcard and it's like best regards from Denver. Yeah. And it's got a picture of like this very famous swanky street in Denver. And her dream is that I'm going to live on that street one day. So he joined Brown, he strikes a witch, and he takes her to Denver and he buys a house on this road. But none of the neighbors will speak to them. None of the rich people from the town will have anything to do with them because they're common. Yeah. She's vulgar and boy, boisterous. And he's a minor, a yeah. simple country boy. Yeah. And so someone gives him the advice, you know, that if you want to get these people to accept you you have to have a bit of polish mm. and the best place to get polish is in europe so <laughs> so it turns into my fair lady my fair lady so yeah <laughs> she learns to read and write she learns to dance and speak languages and paint and do all sorts of cultured things but they go to europe yeah and 
but her, her he's not happy she loves it she embraces being amongst all these different cultures and learning she's like a sponge she just soaks in all this information about life and yeah. the world but he's 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 happy at home he wants to go back to america and to his hometown with his old chums and then she so they sort of have this bit of estrangement he she stays and he goes back to america and then she realizes that she could stay in europe and just become uh, a uh, dowager countess. Yes. Yeah. And just sort of wither into what's not her mm. and just conform to that European society or she can go home and go back to her husband. So she goes home on the Titanic. So they actually have the Titanic in the film. Uh, the well, film. I guess, I guess yeah. that you would need to have that in yeah. there. Because a couple of weeks ago we were talking, uh, Sean chose... Um, Night to Remember. A Night to Remember. Yeah. He chose a night to remember. And that's all obviously all about the Titanic. And we were talking about the two main Titanic movies being Titanic and um, a night to remember. Yeah. So you're saying that there's actually so the the sinking of Titanic is actually documented it's in this film. In this film, yes, you see her getting on the lifeboat, and then you see her like giving her furs to someone who's cold and shivering. Oh and yeah. She gives her jacket to someone else who's cold and shivering, and she ends up stand, stood there in her underwear basically, I sort of going, oh, you know, she's just rubbing her arms and going, yeah. we can do it, row and. Yeah. And no one's gonna die on this boat and she's really rallying the troops. Yeah. And then you see her coming back to like a ticker tape parade in New York where she's like hailed as this the unsinkable, amazing Molly Brown who, you know, saved people's lives on the Titanic. Okay, let's say a little bit about Debbie Reynolds' performance in this film. Yeah, so in um as you said in Singing in the Rain, she's obviously she's young, she yeah. plays like this sort of ingenue, this sort of young innocent girl who's taken, you know, persuaded by this older man or she falls in love with this older man Gene Kelly in this she's she plays younger than she is so she plays like she's 19 or 20 but she's yeah. a bit older and she's a real go for it there's no holding back in this performance there's no subtlety in this performance and she in every scene she gives it 100 and yeah, yeah I, was, I was thinking because even in belly up to the bar even in that song the way she was singing it's very kind of like like on the edge and it's very raspy and it's very like if you listen to that i would be like that isn't debbie reynolds no <laughs> she does there's no sort of sweetness about her character she's full-on in your face and oh, she's yeah? there and what i wanted to mention as well about this film it's striking as well is the leading man is old okay. half presnell who's got an amazing voice and i think he's one of the undiscovered treasures oh yeah of the sort of 60s cinema and I, I was reading an article about him today and they said basically he was he came to the he came to the cinema too late he had the most amazing voice and he would have been perfect had he been made famous in the 40s and 50s yeah. at the height of the musicals yeah because by the time this was made in what 1964 this was the end of that they had like the sound of music to come i think but this was the end of that musicals era yeah because uh, uh, before that i mean hollywood was the musicals yes it was in, the, in the 40s 50s it was kind of like the musicals ruled yeah and he should have been as famous as gene kelly or as howard keel he had the voice. He was tall. He was six foot five. He was yeah. handsome. He was, but he's best known, I think, for most people who haven't seen this film. He sings. They call the wind Mariah in Paint Your Wagon. I love that film. It's, and <laughs> he's got this most gorgeous, rich, beautiful voice. Yeah. Where he sings with feeling and 
Well, yeah, because oh, because that's I remember okay. I was watching a bit of the belly up to the bar thing, and I was like, and I because I, I, I asked you, I was like, hang on a second, is that Howard Keel? Is Howard Keel in this film? <laughs> <laughs> because it looked like it was, I mean, maybe it was just the fact that it, it reminded me so much of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, yes. the song or anything. But I was like, oh, Howard Keel, yay, yay, Howard Keel. And you're like, no, it isn't him. It's not him. <laughs> but yet half Presnell. So I think it's and to me, it's a tragedy that he, you don't see him more on screen singing. Yeah, he only did yeah a couple of films like either yeah Paint Your Wagon. And, and this one where he really you really see the depth of his his talent yeah but yeah it's just he was just like born too late to be a huge musical star but i think yeah and he plays it with more feeling and more sensitivity he's not quite so full-on but there's some great scenes in it there's some great things like there's belly up the bar boys is one thing there's another dance where it's um this is my friend i think it's called yeah. and there has an amazing dance number in that where they it's one of my favourite on-screen dance numbers, really, just because of the energy and the exuberance of it. And, yeah, it's great fun. So I like Unsingled Molly Brown because I think it has that energy and it's fun and it's just, yeah, it just it's where I live in the musicals world. <laughs> that sort of madness, but with, with feeling. That kind of madness, the kind of bars where everybody dances. Yeah, and oh, even the, when the prostitutes come in, <laughs> they're yeah. the most awful-looking people you've ever seen in your life you, because i've seen some of these clips and when you said it was uh, when you said it was a body house all of a sudden some of those scenes made sense yeah. <laughs> and, because i was like why are they dressed like them mm, never mind and then you get these yeah these women who stole it and you you think well, she looks a complete fright but <laughs> but they end up being like with like you know tarts with the hearts of gold and there's these scenes that with yeah they're they're hard as nails but there's a chink of you know tenderness in them yeah because I, I think that this is the kind of film just talking about what it covers and the fact that it goes from boisterous on the straw and it has a bit of a love story and everything and then carries on onto the titanic it yes. seems like it there's quite a few different sort of like tones that it sort of traverses and it ha has to sort of change from one yeah. to the other it's like no this is like a kid's movie no this is like a love story no this is like a sort of historical document almost yeah. so. I think because it's not completely conventional in that it isn't a straightforward you know, love story happy ever after. Yeah. Because they do split up and there's a suggestion that she might have a dalliance with this count yeah. in when she's in Paris. Yeah, you had to be a French guy. Yeah, there's like this other <laughs> possible other man. And so it's not a conventional thing, but you know, in the end, you know, you see him fling his hat on their bed and it's <laughs> like, Oh, he's there back together again. Sob. And so it, it <laughs> So it, but it's not com entirely conventional that you know that she's not your typical you know, sweet little princess. Yeah. She's a bit mad and she's a bit hoidonish. You know, she's a tomboy at the beginning and you see her, but then you see her dressed beautifully for a, for a party that she gives. Yeah. And yeah, so it, it, she transforms. Okay, cool, cool. So it, it's it, it's weird. I mean, I don't want to sort of like play it down, but it does sound like a whole bunch of different, like a Seven Brides, Seven Brothers section, the My Fair Lady section. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like all Definitely. These, there yeah. are all these elements that Calamity Jane is in there. Yeah. All the, I think that's might be why it sort of dipped away because all those elements are done completely yeah, in, in other, other, in other movies. movies right. Where this has got a little bit of everything in it. But to me, I just, I just, oh, I love musicals anyway. There's not many that I don't like, but yeah, this one is up there with one of my favourites because of the sheer exuberance and joy and madness of it. Cool. So the unsinkable Molly Brown. The unsinkable Molly Brown. Go, tr go track it down. Go check it out. I might have to do that myself. And now we <gasps> now. go into a section of the show called the exception to the rule. 
And this is where, as Sharon said earlier, we pick a film that we say was made after 1980, but you, it's still worth your time. It's still worth however long it is of your time, two hours, go sit down, track this film down, sit down and enjoy it and think, ah, oh, this reminds me of when all this was Fields. But I have gone, I've, uh, well, this is more of a sort of collaborative effort, isn't it? Because we were thinking that we had we had Singing in the Rain earlier on. We ended up with Sickle Molly Brown. There's quite a few musicals. So we're thinking about modern musicals. Modern musicals. And, we think, and we ended up with two and deciding on two. We had a bit of a coin flip, didn't we, about yeah, those? And one of the, the one that we didn't choose will show up on a later show. Yeah. We promise that it will show up on a later show. And uh, But when we came to modern musicals and also the fact that Singing in the Rain was a jukebox musical with yes. songs that previously existed, that were put together to make this film I was like well Moulin Rouge good choice Moulin Rouge this I think it was 2004 or something like that yes it was 2000 yeah well no, it was earlier than that 2003 maybe Baz Luhrmann yeah Baz Luhrmann so directed by the Australian um, the Australian director Baz Luhrmann who brought Romeo and Juliet bang up into the 90s yeah. with the uh, DiCaprio Kate, uh, Claire Danes starring uh William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And so this was his next film, Moulin Rouge, which is, as I said, a jukebox musical. It's set in Paris um, when Moulin Rouge was like, you know, the big attraction yeah, to go Belle to Epoque. in Paris. Yeah, oh, the, oh, that's the n- name of the period, isn't yeah. it? The Belle, the, the Belle Epoque. And so this, Ewan McGregor plays a writer who shows up in Paris uh, during during the Belle Epoque because he wants to be an artist. Like yes. He wants to be a writer and he wants to, and he ends up meeting people like Toulouse-Lautrec <laughs> and everything like that and gets drawn into this crazy world bohemian of Moulin Rouge. The yeah. crazy bohemian world of Moulin Rouge. And he's, he meets Nicole Kidman's character who's Satine, who is like the number one performer in Moulin Rouge and she's like you know the height of this bohemian thing and she's kind of like comes down from the from the from the ceiling on like you know a feathered yeah, board she, trapeze yeah, and all she that she just looks like an Alphonse Mosher picture doesn't she I don't yeah. know how to pronounce that right but you know you see those wonderful pictures don't you with the girls with the auburn hair and yeah Pat, you know, you know, ivory skin, red yeah, lips. Yeah. yeah, pretty much goddess. Yeah, pretty much uh, like the, the she said. And this character Satine is set up as this sort of goddess that, like, you know, all the men want to be around and all that kind of stuff. And she is like the, the number one attraction, and she's the one who keeps the doors of Moulin Rouge open. And so he falls in love with her, and through quite a funny scene, she falls in love with him as well because she, when she thinks he because there's a count, and they think, oh, we need this count's money to keep the Moulin Rouge open. And if he likes Satine, and if Satine is amenable to the count then we can keep the door and so she yeah. thinks he's the count and then there's this whole scene and it's quite funny uh, when when she f- they find out that she he isn't actually but one of the great things about it uh, that I find about it is the songs yes. is the way they they find a way to put the songs I'm not sure whether they wrote the story first and they went and found modern songs that fits into the fits into the story or whether they had the songs and they went how can we how can we link all these together but the kind of thing that they did is I'm going to play one of the songs that they took and put in the film. First of all, I'm going to play a little bit of what the song sounds like before it has all been Moulin Rouged. Yes. And then we're going to play what they did with the song in the film. Now, this is the song before... Uh, this is the song originally. You might recognize it. Yeah. 
Now, you recognize this as Roxanne by the police. So obviously, it's uh, you, you might be thinking, how on earth is this going to a musical? Because hey, I know I would be. But then in Moulin Rouge, in Moulin Rouge, this is what they do with it. When they actually change it and they go, right, okay, we're going to put this into the thing. And I'll explain how it fits into the storyline in a second. So this is the Moulin Rouge version of Roxanne. Which they called El Tango de Roxanne. <laughs> in the Brussels of Buenos Aires. <sighs> Tells the story. A prostitute. And a man. Falls in love. First, there is desire. Right, so that was Ewan McGregor and Yashek Komen in the film. And so that was that's a scene where I think when we're talking about Moulin Rouge, if you see the film, that is just, when I first saw it, this was just a standout moment in yes. the film for me. Because it's just the way it's shot. They have this whole dance thing where they're all yeah, doing the, the Argentine tango. tango and yeah. it's the way it's lit and it's all dark and they're all in the Moulin Rouge at night. And it's just like, man, this is awesome. I think that was the first time I'd seen the Argentine tango. Oh, yeah? And I think it just blew me away completely because you'd always think of tango as being a bit daft. Oh, yeah? With a lot of roses between your teeth and <laughs> strutting up and down a forum. But this was, you could see the passion and the drama and, and the just the lines. tension in it. Yeah. And I think one of the things is the, is the way they marry the song with the mood of the film at that time. Yes. So, for instance, at this point in the film, what's happened is the Duke, who is going to be this big benefactor that they need to keep the Moulin Rouge open, has pretty much said, I'm not doing this, I'm not going to do anything with the Moulin Rouge unless I get Satine, which is the yes. Nicole Kidman character. Yeah. He says, unless I get her. and so, be But because she's in love with Ewan McGregor, people are telling her, don't be stupid, you can't trade love for money and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. It's like, take the money, ignore the love, what big, you'll find another guy at some point. Yeah. And so she, she essentially goes, okay, no, look, we need to do this to save the Moulin Rouge. And then she goes off to essentially spend the night with the Duke. Yeah. And when she does that, that's when they, they have a character who's only called the narcoleptic Argentinian. Yeah. Who, is, who is awesome. Who's just, who's just mad, a member of this mad group of bohemians that they have in Paris. And he's the one who's like singing the song and he's telling about how we have this story 
yeah. the streets of Buenos Aires. And he's like, does this whole thing. And it just becomes this extremely theatrical moment. Yeah. The song is awesome. Everything is dope. It could have gone so over the top, but it's so it right. Yes. It so works. And the dancers are these like hard-faced prostitutes, aren't they? A lot of yeah. the dancers yeah. doing the obviously female role. And then you've got these the male dancers with their vests and races yeah. on and it just captures the mood of the dance perfectly and the song and it tells a story and it and it tells and the, the, yeah. for me that is the the one of the greatest achievements i think of moulin rouge is that a lot of musicals can be can be accused of stopping all the action yeah. and stopping the story to have a song yeah so it's like like we're doing this we're doing this doing this we're going to stop now we're going to yeah. sing a song, sing a song. Yeah. and then we're going to carry on and nothing's going to but as if nothing happened yeah as, <laughs> as if nothing had happened but in in it all the songs move things along. Yeah. All the songs tell you about what's going on, tell you about the characters, tell you about and I just think it's a it's a great, great film. It's it's one of those films where like um so of uh, my wife, Claudia, she doesn't have the world's best pop culture knowledge. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. She hasn't she hasn't seen a whole bunch of things or anything like that. And so every time when I'm like, you know, when you have somebody like that and you're trying to say, oh, that's awesome, you need to watch this. And every time, now and then you have to ask yourself the question, hang on a second, is it really awesome? Should I really recommend it? Because yeah. they, they, um, I might, they might not think I have that good taste anymore. If I, <laughs> but this was something I was like, no. You're you gonna watch, to watch this film. This. You gotta watch this film. She was like, "Oh, no. I was like, oh, I don't care. I don't. This is a great film. This is a great film. I'm not even gonna bother about overhyping it because you will watch it and you will realize it's a great film." Yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, got to show it to her and she loves it. She thinks it's like she thinks that Munaru is just an amazing film. Yeah, I which love it. it is. Yeah. Which it is. It's. I would go on a limb and say it's probably the greatest modern musical. It's definitely. I would say it's definitely up there. Is that, yeah, I think greatest model musical. Well, yeah. live action anyway, because Disney kind of never stopped making musicals. But but yeah, I think it's, yes, I think it's it's so many good things about this film. I think the characters work well. I think, yeah, Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor work together, don't yes, they? Yes, they really he, do. Because he can convey this sort of innocence. No matter how old he is, he can still be like this fresh-faced innocent, can't yeah, he? Yeah. Who just embraces life and looks at the world in a certain way. Yeah. And she can sort of do that cynicism and that weariness, despite her beauty. You know, she's beautiful, but she's not. You, know, you see this depth behind, there's pain behind that, yeah. that facade of just that perfection. And all the characters who pop up, like Toulouse Trek, who's that this, this comic mad dwarf, <laughs> well, play, play, played by played by John Leguizamo. Yeah, and he's and he was in Romeo and Juliet. He was yeah, he was as, in Romeo and Juliet. He was really sexy. He, wasn't he was he? Tybalt. In, Tybalt in yeah. Romeo and Juliet, and then here he's a real comic character. Well, I, I think transformative actor. I think he's. Really oh no, good. John Leguizamo is one of my favorite actors because there, there seems to be nothing that he cannot do. Yeah, you put him in a fat suit, no problem. Put him in makeup, no problem. Give him like you know uh, a sort of camp kind of thing. To, he'll do yeah. it. Give him like a hard uh, sort of like gangster play. He'll do it. There's like almost nothing that I've seen yeah. that that he, I've come to because that he can't he is do. Completely transformative. You don't realize it's the same actor sometimes. You yeah. So him. Yeah. And it, yeah. Because he, he, yeah, he's completely underrated. Uh, I think in some ways, but in, yeah, in some in some in ways, this, I think, I think so. Like, I mean, the fact that he's I don't think he's ever been nominated for like a big award. No. I, I don't think he's ever been nominated for a big award. And I think sometimes, I think it's because he has too much fun. Yeah. <laughs> he, he has way too much fun when he doesn't actually... doesn't look like he's acting. Yeah, he doesn't look like he's acting. He takes roles that like in some, what some people might call lesser films, but he, yeah. does, he just does it for the heck of it. He's like, yeah, I'm enjoying myself, whatever. Yeah. So, um... 
but he's good. And he's one of those cast of and the background characters. And there's Jim Broadbent. Oh, who Jim Broadbent. Runs the, the Moulin Rouge. Oh, Jim Broadbent. I, I think for one of the funniest scenes when I first saw the film was the scene where he and Richard Roxborough, who plays the Duke. He plays the Duke. I say he's a very good actor as well. We don't yeah. see a lot of him anymore, Richard Roxborough. But... Not much. I think Van Helsing killed it for him. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I know uh, Richard Roxborough. Um, he. Uh, they they perform a version of Madonna's Like a Virgin. Yes. Which is oh, hilarious. He's so creepy, isn't it? <laughs> so hilarious. It's Jim Broadbent, again, he can be charming, he can be affectionate and warm, but he can be sinister and creepy as well. He can totally be and totally he, creepy. And this, he can be, yeah, he was so creepy when he sang that. <laughs> I, mean, I, uh, I don't think it's so, I think this is a film that we would recommend to anybody to go watch. Go track it down if you haven't seen it. If yes. you're a fan of musicals, this is one that, that I think gets what the why the best musicals work. Yes. Like when I talked about area about Singing in the Rain being like the most complete Jim Kelly movie, I feel this is like a really really complete film. Um, uh, at Moulin Rouge, which is which is a story that could be very very simple in some ways. I in some yeah. ways I remember watching it and I'm thinking, well, this is kind of like Romeo and Juliet, the story like that were, that were, were being served up here. But when you think about Baz Luhrmann had just done Romeo and Juliet, and then what yeah. he does with this. It just it's seems one of like his different. red curtain trilogies, isn't it? Because the other one being Strictly Ballroom, ah. which I adore. I must admit, that is one of my top five ever, ever, ever favourite films, Strictly Ballroom. <laughs> love it, love it. And so this for me is like that, his, his red curtain trilogy. I think they, they, to me, that all three of them are worthy of being fabulous films. They are amazing, amazing films. Okay, now um, we will play a song. We're, we're actually going to give, like, you know, Sting and his boys a chance yes. to actually get their version out, which isn't as good as El Tango de Roseanne, <laughs> by the way. I just, I'm just going to put it out there. So we're going to get Sting and his boys a chance, and then we'll be back in a second to talk about films that we have seen at the cinema recently. You see, where's the drama? Yeah. Where, where, where's the where's the I'm not visualizing prostitutes and gangsters dancing to that. I am not seeing any dance whatsoever. I mean, Sting, thank you for writing the song because then it could be used in Moulin Rouge and awesomeness could have been done with it. But at the same time, I, this is one of the few times when I think I look at it and I go, you know what? Somebody took that song and did something with it, and I prefer, I prefer yeah. the the cover than, than yes. the original. This is one of the few times I would ever say that. I think because they were so radical with their reimagining oh, of it. What they it did, worked, it's, how do you even come up with that? Uh, so anyway, um, our point is to everybody listening in the hospital, please go watch Moulin Rouge <laughs> <laughs> because it's awesome. So, it's exceptional. It is an exceptional, exceptional film. Um, yeah, a sp- okay, okay, move on, move on. Stop talking and just go- move on. Anyway, we're out of time. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Jillian, thank you so much for your choices. Until next week, take it easy, get well soon, and remember that as always, they don't make make them like like they used to.